Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Like Tori said, Merry Christmas from us to you. So glad you're here today. If I haven't met yet, my name is Andrew. I'm on staff here at the chapel, and we are jumping into Christmas today. I'm continuing our series through the line, but before we do, I know for some of you, this might be your Christmas service. With Christmas being on a weekend, you might be taking advantage of traveling to go see family. If it is, I'm going to say Merry Christmas if we don't get a chance. But if you're going to be in town the 23rd, the 24th, or the 25th, we would love to see you. The 23rd will be here, like Tori said, 24th at both locations. And the 25th, um, you can come here, but no one else will be here. We will be over at LSU. Um, all together, would love to get to worship with you um, there. Now, when it came to our Christmas series this year, it's a little bit different. We do have a picture of the manger there, but we're not talking about cute little eight-pound baby Jesus. We're not talking about wise men and shepherds. If anything, we're actually talking about the implications of Jesus coming. Why did he come? And what does that mean for us? You might hear often that when Jesus came, everything changed. But the question is, what actually changes? And today we're going to really dive into something personal, um, something really at the core of who we are. We're going to see how does Jesus change our identity? Now, all of us might not go through what we call an, an identity crisis in life. Some of you might have, some of you might be going through it right now. But all of us really wrestle with those existential questions of who am I? Who do I want to be? Who do I need to be? What is my purpose here on earth? And really, as we begin to wrestle with that, those questions, you realize that's a pretty complex subject because our identity is wrapped up in lots of things. Our experiences, our relationships, our memories, our beliefs, our values, and even things we can't control. Our race, our gender, our height, our amount of hair on top. All of these things kind of come into what is our identity. And as we begin to wrestle with our identity, we can really kind of have some inner strife, some inner turmoil of who really am I? But it's not just tension we find within ourselves; It also can cause tension with those around us. Because if we battle with our own identity, we can really begin to lash out at other people out of fear and insecurity. Or we can actually begin to look down upon people because their identity does not match ours. And that can really cause some major issues. That's where we see racism begin to slide in bigotry, arrogance, the caste systems, generational divides. And before too long, the question of who am I becomes who are you and how dare you tell me because of who you are. And we just have absolute issues. And those issues are new to us today. They're actually, I mean, really existent from the very beginning, but specifically at the time that Jesus came. What we've seen so far, we're going to see today as well, is that Jesus, when he came, he changed everything. When Jesus came, he changed everything everything. And what we're going to really dive into today is not just something kind of a big idea of Jesus came as God, which he did and all the things that come with that. But how did Jesus actually come and change everything for me, but also within me? Because today we're really going to dive into the core of who we are and what Jesus says about us, but also who he calls us to be. And to do that, we're going to be in the book of Luke. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Um, we're not going to be looking at little bitty baby Jesus, but we're going to be looking at 40-day-old baby Jesus, so it still kind of feels a little Christmassy. But I want to remind you of what's going on in the gospel of Luke. We actually did a series a year ago walking through the gospel of Luke, starting in Luke chapter 1. But I want to remind you of really what's happening because we need to see how much weight this passage has, how really valid it is, how authentic it is for us to experience the weight today. So this was written by a guy named 
Luke, which is really original. The Gospel of Luke is the Gospel according to Luke. But Luke was not a Christian whenever he started writing this Gospel or this account of Jesus' life. He was actually a Gentile, which means he was not one of God's chosen people. He was kind of on the outside, but he was hired by, we believe, his friend, a Roman kind of rich guy, Roman aristocrat named Theophilus. And Theophilus most likely had a lot of money because this research program that Luke went through to write his Gospel would have been very expensive. Because he's doing eyewitness interviews, he's doing research. Most people didn't read during this time frame, so to have someone to be able to write and read, it was a whole big undertaking. But through all of that, through all of his questions, his interviews, his eyewitness account research, Luke actually became a Christian and would ultimately be willing to give up his life to follow the Jesus by which he wrote about. And I tell you all of that because when we look at the validity of the New Testament and how it impacts us, we have to see we don't believe the Bible just because some old man told us to one day. We don't believe it just because Sunday school says you believe the Bible, it's God's word, that's it. We believe the scriptures because of the eyewitness accounts. People die for what they believe all the time, but people don't die for what they know to be a lie. And people don't die for what they believe they saw. So I want us to see the real validity and really the authenticity of what we're going to look at today because it will impact us at our core level. And Luke describes it this way in Luke chapter 1 as to why he wrote. He said, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, talking about Jesus, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Three and four are really, really powerful. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, he's a doctor, so like he is all about the details. He investigated everything from the, from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, which means lover of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So if you've walked away from Christianity thinking, I don't know if I can really believe this, I want you to see this is written from the account of a doctor, someone extremely attentive to detail who did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. But as he began to interview and write this, he became convinced that Jesus truly is who he says he is and what he writes is true. And what we write, we will see today that he wrote will actually impact you at a very, very personal level. So let's dive into Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And again, Jesus is about 40 days old. His parents, Mary and Joseph, are taking him to the temple according to Jewish law. It says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, took Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Verse 24. And to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of dove or two young pigeons. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but really a couple of things Luke wants us to see. That Mary and Joseph were really good Jewish people. They were devout. They were righteous. They did everything the Jewish law will require them to do. And Luke wants us to see that because later on, Jesus is going to have some rub with the Jewish people. He's going to have some rub with Jewish leaders. And he didn't want them to look back and say, well, he was a bad Jew from the beginning. No, Mary and Joseph, his parents, followed the law to the letter. They were righteous and devout people, which is probably why God chose them to be Jesus's parents. But we see they came to do what was called the purification rites. He's already been circumcised, all that sensitive subject. You can talk to our elders about that after the service if you have questions. But they're there for the purification rites, which is where they would bring a newborn child, specifically a male, and say, look, even though he's our child, he belongs to you, God. He is our firstborn. He belongs to you. But more so, Jesus is truly the son of God. So he 
belongs to you. And they would also pay what was called the priestly ransom or the priestly tax. So for the Old Testament guys who know this, the, the tribe, I mean, the people of Israel were broken down to 12 different tribes. And only one tribe would actually have young men that would grow up to be priests. They were the Levites. But everyone else that had baby boys had to pay what's called the priestly tax or the priestly ransom to, to cover the cost for the priest of five shekels of silver. So they came to follow through and do what they had to do according to the law. But then they would come for this, to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. Now we see this written back in Leviticus chapter 12. And if you want to research this later on in your own time, be prepared for lots of rabbit holes. I spent way too many hours diving into this, just FYI. But back in the day, they were a lady was considered unclean whenever she went through childbirth. And so was the child until they came and offered a sacrifice. Now the preferred sacrifice would be a lamb a beautiful little unblemished baby lamb. But if you could not afford it, we see in Leviticus chapter 12, you could also do a pair of doves or pigeons. And since the lamb wasn't offered here in this setting, most likely Mary and Joseph brought the doves or the pigeons, just again proving something we see throughout Scripture. They weren't necessarily rich. They didn't necessarily have a high socioeconomic status. But all of that to be said is this. Mary and Joseph loved the Lord. They were devoted to Him. They were righteous. They were doing what was right in the eyes of God. But they offered their son to the Lord saying, He's not ours. He is yours. And this is really where we pick up our story in verse 25 with our first main character. So there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, just like Mary and Joseph. The dude had it going on. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll get to that in a minute. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Simeon outside of what was actually written right here in this passage, but we see he was a very devout and righteous guy. He was a good dude. He stood out above his peers that he followed the Lord with everything. Not just that, the Holy Spirit would speak to him. God himself would reveal things to Simeon, which I think is really, really cool. But then really, I love this last part. He would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. I think that's cool for two reasons. One's a spiritual reason and one is a fleshly reason. Number one, the fact that he gets to see the Messiah, he gets to see God's promised one from Genesis chapter three, that God has promised would come. That's pretty dang cool to know you get to see Jesus. And secondly, he knows he won't die until he sees Jesus. Like forget speed limits, forget seat belts, forget ropes at the Grand Canyon. I'm going all in because I'm not gonna die until I see Jesus. Jesus. That's not spiritual. I just think that's really cool, the fact that he wouldn't die. But we do notice here, he was pointed as resolute, as righteous, as devout. But he was awaiting what was called the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Israel, where God would come and once again cleanse his people. Because the people of Israel at this point in time, God's chosen people, the Hebrew nation, they were very, very far from God. They were still doing all the right religious things, but they allowed religion to serve them instead of allowing religion to point them to God, to point them to the coming Messiah. They were living in a really tough time as well under Roman empire, the Roman rule over them, but also God hadn't spoken via a prophet for over 400 years. They were in a really dark and tough place, but they weren't expecting the coming Messiah. They were expecting a king to come and rescue them from the bondage of slavery and to restore them to power. But what was Simeon looking for? Simeon was looking for what God had promised, a Messiah, one who would come and redeem and save his 
people. And actually the word Simeon, his name means God has heard. God has heard and seen who Simeon is. So let's keep going and see what else happens with Simeon. It says, Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, I think this is really cool and also a little weird at this point in time. He gets to see Jesus. He gets to hold Jesus. But can we be honest? I'm hoping God had told Mary and Joseph to hand baby Jesus off to Simeon because there's no way I'm giving my 40-day-old baby to an old man who probably looks like he's on death's door, which he was, to allow him to hold my child unless God told me to. I'm just like, that, that's kind of awkward and kind of weird. But that brings up a tension that I think we need to wrestle with today. Because back in that day and also back in, in our time today, our identity before Jesus was actually designated and determined by our age. By our age. Just like my gut reaction was, why would you give your 40-day-old baby to an old man that you don't know? That shows that we judge people greatly by age. And this would happen back in this old time. Whenever people were young, they were young leaders, they weren't allowed to lead. They weren't allowed to have influence because they thought young people were inexperienced, mature, didn't understand, and were sometimes just plain dumb. And back in this day too, the old people, they became more of a, really a reliability or something that would really cost them something. Uh, and they're really vulnerable. They were more of a burden than they were actually an asset. They were like, just put you out to pasture, let you be done. The first century, if you were old or young, you didn't really serve much purpose. But can we be honest? That happens in the 21st century too. And them youngins and Generation Z, are you kidding me, right? Like they're inexperienced, they're immature, they're lazy, they're addicted to something, whether it's gaming, the internet, uh, air conditioning, themselves, drugs, right? Like they're addicted to something. They're just useless. That's the way we painted the younger generation, which I myself can fall into that at times. And those are stereotypes, but if you hear it enough, you begin to believe it. What about the old generation? The geezers, the boomers, right? Like, are you kidding me? Put them out to pasture. They just don't understand. Their day is gone. Their day is done. We need to get rid of them. They cost us too much money. Put them in the nursing home. Put them on a boat. Send them sailing. Like, we need to be done with the old people. Again, stereotypical. But everything you hear, if you hear it enough, you begin to believe. And when you begin to hear something enough and begin to believe it, it begins to affect you at your core. It begins to affect your identity. And when something begins to affect your identity, it begins to affect the way you see yourself, the way you see others, the way you see the world, and ultimately the way you see God. When we allow ourselves to be identified by our age in the way the world describes it, we actually begin to miss the inherent value that God has put on us as His children, no matter our age. And what did we see when it looks at Simeon? Simeon was an old guy, but what did Simeon get to do? Simeon got to not just see Jesus, he got to hold Jesus. Another lady we're going to see in just a minute, a lady named Anna, she was most likely older than Simeon. She didn't just get to hold Jesus, she got to prophesy about him, declare his salvation to the world. So our identity before Jesus is age. Our identity after Jesus, the line he drew, was that we are useful no matter our age. We are useful to God no matter our age. If you're a youngin in here, which I can fall into that crowd sometimes, yes, submit, yes, be wise, yes, discern, ask people for wisdom and engage, but don't sit on the sideline. 
Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth. God, from the very beginning, has used young people. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was used to get Pharaoh to actually give, give Moses back to his mom to raise. We see Daniel, the guy, whenever he went to the lion's den, he was old then, but whenever he was young, he and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat, if you watch VeggieTales, they were all young, and they got to stand firm for the Lord. Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, were most likely teenagers, used for the glory of God. The disciples, most all young teenage people, God used the young generation, but God also used the older generation as well. Daniel was used in Daniel 1 as a young guy. By the time he went to the lion's den, he was old and beef jerky. God used him in an incredible way. Moses was old, leading the people out of slavery. Joshua, this guy named Isaiah, and even to the point of Anna and Simeon. No matter what age you are, you are still useful to God. So if you're young, get off the sideline and go in. And if you're of the older generation, I've heard too many people say this, even here at this church, I've done my time, I'm not really useful anymore. And don't, don't let that be a cop-out. The church needs you. We need you. And put it this way, not just we, me. I need you. You're useful no matter your age. Let's keep going. Verse 30. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And what we see here is kind of hidden in here, but he's talking about not just to the, to the people of Israel, but also to nations and the Gentiles. He's showing us the way the world was seen before Christ came. And it's this, our identity before Jesus is our race. Our identity before Jesus is our race. And we'll get into it. There's nothing wrong with being excited or proud of who you are, your ethnicity, but we can absolutely take it too far because the race back in this time wasn't just a designator of identity. It was a reason for discrimination. It was a reason to actually speak down and see people as less than, throwing out the Imago Dei, throwing out them being made in the image of God. And we saw this with the Roman soldiers. They would actually call the Jewish people dogs. They would insult them completely. But it wasn't just the secular world bashing the followers of God. The followers of God would actually bash the people that were only half Jewish, these people called Samaritans. They wouldn't even interact with them at all. Why? Because of their race. And we were absolutely guilty of the same thing today. Now, a few weeks ago, we did a series called What We Want For You. And the last message we did, The Disciple Maker That's Globally Minded, we walked through for about 15 minutes, I ranted about racism. I'm not going to do that full rant again, but I want you to hear this. Guys, if we are living with a superiority or a pride due to our race, we are living contrary to the gospel. Racism is the antithesis of the gospel. That Jesus saw us, people who were so different from him, completely different from him, of all colors, all races, that we were made in his image and he came to save us all. If there's any bit of superiority because of the color of your skin, the country of your origin, or your ethnicity, then you are living contrary to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans, Persians, African-Americans, Caucasians, Native Americans, all of this, we see our identity before Jesus was a race. Our identity after Jesus is this. We're united no matter our race. Once we're in Christ, we're united no matter our race. I've had the opportunity to travel all around the world, um, which I don't ever want to take for granted. But I've met different 
people of, of different beliefs, but I've met a lot of Christians in places to where I don't look like them, I don't eat like them, I don't talk like them. We actually speak different languages, but I can feel the connection I have with them even greater than I can feel the people in my own country who don't know Jesus. And I want to be very clear, you are more connected to someone who is also a follower of Jesus, who has a different nationality than you are of your family who does not know Jesus. The Holy Spirit binding us together, uniting us no matter our race, that is the bond that holds us together. I love the way Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And he's like, look, Jews, quit looking at Gentiles as infidels. Like they are now your brothers and sisters in Christ. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's saying once you're in Christ, yes, you can be proud of who you are, but not to the detriment or discrimination of someone else. We're united and equal in Christ. So your identity is no longer your age, whether you're a geezer or a youngin. Your identity is no longer your race, black, white, or from overseas. You are one in Christ. You're useful. You're united. Verse 36. Here we speak, skip to our next main character. There was also a prophet or prophetess named Anna, which is also my sister-in-law, but she's not 84 years old. The daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. I love that Luke is not politically great. She's like, she's just old. We're going to be honest here. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So you see, not only is Anna old, she's also something else that had a huge identifying mark when it came to our identity. She's also a woman. Our identity before Jesus is our gender. And her being a woman, again, just wasn't a designating mark. It was also a huge disadvantage back in the first century because women and men were not seen as equals in the first century. They were not seen as they were actually worth the same thing. Women back in this time were property that served a purpose. They're property that served a purpose. Look, marry me, have my babies, feed me, and then keep your mouth shut. That's the way women were treated back in this day. And it wasn't just the secular Roman world. It was also within the, the idea of Judaism, the idea of following the Lord. They were not equals. But the reality is this wasn't just first century. This is also in our day today. Women are more likely to be physically, mentally, sexually, and spiritually abused in our world today than men are. When it comes to the secular workforce, women are not paid the same, but also they don't have the same ability to climb the ranks. They have a lower ceiling in our world today than men do. And things are being done about that, but it's still not the case. They have a lower ceiling than men do. But can we be honest? That's not just the secular world. The church is just as guilty of it as anyone else. We treat women differently within the church than we do men. And we might not come outright and say, ladies, just be quiet and leave it to the men. But my golly, that is man, really, really hinted at, even though most women are closer to the Lord than a lot of the men doing the leading. And I, I want to be clear where we stand. The chapel believes in male headship. We believe that elders and the teaching pastors should be men. We, we teach and believe Scripture teaches male headship, but Scripture does not teach male only ship. They does not teach male ownership. Ladies should have a voice. They should have influence. We have different roles, but we do not have different values. And I want to be very clear. Ladies, if you are in here today and you have felt less than by something I have done or something I have said, I want to say I am sorry. That is wrong according to Scriptures, according to the life of Jesus. If our church has done something, if another pastor, if someone in this world has told you you are less than because you're a woman, I want to apologize on their behalf and say, 
that is wrong. Because after Jesus, we're equal, no matter our gender. Yes, we have different roles, but we are equal no matter our gender. And, and Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. No matter your gender, you matter to God. And ladies, you are not less than. You're not less than a man. You're not below a man. You're not worth less than a man. You are chosen by God to spread his gospel, to share his glory, and to build his kingdom on this earth. Some of the greatest leaders we see throughout Scripture are ladies. We talked to Miriam a while ago. We see Elizabeth in Scripture, Ruth, Esther, Mary, the mother of Jesus. The first person to see the resurrected King Jesus was Mary Magdalene, a woman. Women are not less than men. Gender does not determine our identity. Verse 37. And then there was, and she was, then there was a widow, and she was this Anna, a widow, until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Now, Anna has become one of my favorite people in Scripture because she's the trifecta. She's not just old. She's not just an old woman. She's an old woman who is also a widow. So she has all three things going against her when it comes to her identity and when it comes to being disadvantageous in her world because widows had no one to care for them. Outside of orphans, they were the most vulnerable in society. Literally, she just stayed at the temple. She stayed at church all day long. She had no job. She had no one to care. She had no family, which shows us this. Our identity before Jesus is our socioeconomic status. And this isn't just back in this day, which was, which was huge back in this day, but isn't this also the case here? We're all about our status, how much money we have, how many resources, how much influence we have. If we have relatives that have power, we have a famous relatives, if we have famous friends, you like to kind of flex them. People love to tell that they're friends with Andrew Bates. I don't know why, it, just, it, is, it is what it is. But the reality is, don't we, we judge people this way, don't we? And this isn't just the secular world. We treat people differently based off of if they have money, power, if they're beautiful, or if they can do something for us. And we also see ourselves differently because of this. A few weeks ago in this room, I got to experience this firsthand. There was a, a first-time guest that came in and were talking to some of the people in the group with me, acted like I did not exist at all. And I was like, invisible on Sunday morning. This is great. Until the person came back a few minutes later and said, man, I'm so sorry I didn't talk to you. I didn't realize who you were. And I was like, really? My title, my status determined whether you would speak to me or not? I didn't say that out loud. I probably should have. But that's the reality we live in. Our status determines our identity. But what we see in the story of Jesus, the story of Anna, the story of Simeon, is God did not, that did not keep them from being used by God, did not keep them from being loved by God. If anything, it put them forward to not just hold the baby Jesus, but prophesy about him. Our identity after Jesus said we are worthy. We are worthy no matter our status. So if you're in the room and you're rich, you're powerful, you're influential, you have what our world would say is a very, very good status. I want to tell you this, you're worthy, not because of those things, but you're worthy because our God said you were. But if you're in this room and you're not rich, you're poor, you feel like a failure, you have mental issues, you have physical issues, you feel like you're failing on all fronts, at work, at home, and all over the place, no matter what your status is, you're worthy. You're worthy because our God says you are. 
When it comes to labels, there are only two people in our world that are allowed to label something. The one who made something or the one who purchased it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he both made you and purchased you. And he said, you were worthy for me to come, to live, to die, to be humiliated on this cross. You are worthy. Let's look at verse 38. Just coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I love this, that Anna is a prophet. And prophets, I basically say, are preachers with an attitude. So Anna was getting after it. I was really, I'm really excited about this verse. But what is she proclaiming? She's speaking about the redemption. Speaking about the redemption of Jerusalem, which in turn would represent the Jews, which when Christ came would in turn represent the whole entire world. She's speaking about redemption. But to be redeemed from something... That means something had to go wrong. If you need to be redeemed, then something happened that you need redemption from. And this points us at our true core identity before Jesus. Our identity before Jesus is this. We're sinful. Our identity before Christ is that we are sinners. Now, we berated this point last week. Last week was like the most depressing Christmas message ever, like until the end. But the reality is, our identity before Jesus, you're dead. Like dead things stay dead. Dead things stink. Dead things don't get up and walk unless it's a possum in Louisiana. Dead things stay dead. Sinful means you're separated from God. Our identity before Jesus was hopeless, helpless, sinful, and dead. But Jesus. But he came. He lived. He died. And he invited us in, showing us something incredibly important. Our identity after Jesus is this, that we are loved no matter our sin. We are loved no matter our sin. Our first value here at the chapel, we call it the gospel of grace. And I love this, that Jesus accepts us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. This is the growth piece. And this is what church and sanctification, all those big churchy words are all about. But I want you to focus on this last piece. Jesus accepts us just as we are. He didn't accept you because you have a great socioeconomic status. He didn't accept you because you're male or female. He doesn't accept you because you're rich or you're poor. He doesn't accept you because you're a man or a woman. He doesn't accept you because you're good or you're bad. Jesus accepts us just as we are. There's nothing you can do or have done to you that will cause Jesus to love you any more or any less than he already does. doesn't matter what you did last night. I was at a wedding last night, and there were some people who are regretting right now what they did. <laughs> Jesus loves them and accepts them just as they are. Some of you made mistakes back when you were a teenager. Jesus accepts you just as you are. Some of you are going to make mistakes over the next couple weeks. Know this, Jesus accepts you just as you are. You don't get right and come to God. Before God, you're dead. There is no getting right. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates. He proves his own love for us in this. While we were still righteous, holy, Judaism, Christian people, Christ died for us. Absolutely not. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at rock bottom, when we were serving the God of self over the God of the universe, Christ died for us. You want to know what the message of Christmas is? Is it about eight-pound baby Jesus? Kind of. Is it about wise men? Kind of. Is it about shepherds? Kind of. What, what it's ultimately about is this. Well, we were still sinners. Christ came. He lived. And then he died. 
Why? For us. If you ever question your identity, who you are, what you need to be, all that, which is all important things, all those important things, remember this. Christ deemed you worthy enough, loved enough, useful enough to not just die for you, but to use you to build his kingdom. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me this morning. I'm going to ask you to do this because our band is going to make their way up um, and sing a song that really puts a perfect bow on what we've talked about today. And I'm going to ask you to, to bow your head and close your eyes to remove distractions as the band makes their way up, but I really want you to reflect on what we've talked about today. We moved through something that was very heavy and very deep very, very quickly. And I want you to really think, when you ask the question, who am I? What comes to mind? How do you answer that question? And if it's anything besides loved, worthy, a child of the most high God, forgiven, redeemed, then you're missing the point of Christmas, but you're also missing the power of God. Because whenever God said we were worthy, it's not because what we did, what we could do, or who he thinks we could be. He died simply because he loved us. And that proves that we were worth everything he could give. And if you're here today and you've never made the decision to step into that relationship with God, I want to invite you to do that. Because our God, our King, is the only one who solves the problem of mankind. He's the only one who doesn't say, hey, fix your way and then I might engage with you. He says, no, you can't do anything, so I'm going to come to you. That's the line that our God drew. If you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to do it today. It's really simple because he's done it all. He came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He paid for our sin on the cross that we could never pay enough for. And he rose from the dead, defeating it all, inviting us into his kingdom. All we simply do is believe that he is the son of God. And he did what he said he would do. And we place our trust and our faith and our life in him. If you're ready to do that, I would love to talk to you after the service. But maybe you're, you're here and you're, you're like me. You know the answers. What's your identity in Christ? I am saved. I am good. God is king. But man, you don't live like it. You're still living from the identity that the world tells you you need to be. And you will never be good enough. You'll never be smart enough. You'll never be fast enough. You'll never be rich enough. You'll never be a good enough parent, a good enough boss, a good enough husband, a good enough wife. You'll never be worthy of God's love on your own. But he determined that for us because he both made us and he purchased us. So I pray today and over this Christmas season that you would see that yes, Christmas is about God coming in the form of a baby. But it wasn't just about God coming about what God did and what God declared. Father, we love you. God, I thank you so much for the people that are here. Lord, I thank you for the young that are walking in the back of the room right now, our young children. God, that we would all see no matter our age, no matter our gender, no matter our status, no matter our race, God, that we are worthy because you say we are worthy. And you will use us, not because we are useful, but because you make us useful for your kingdom. God, I pray that we would turn everything over to you. And today that we would see that we are worthy, not because of what we can do for you, but because of what you deemed us worthy to do for us. 
that no matter who we are, we matter to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.